Jeremiah chapter 25, where we left off, beginning in verse 15, I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. It says, for thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is in this day. Pharaoh. King of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastlands, which are across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buzz, and all who are in the farthest corners, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of the Medes, all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world, which are on the face of the earth. Also the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall. And rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Wail, shepherds, and cry. 
Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel, and the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord, he has left his lair like a lion. For their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. In the New Testament, the Bible says judgment begins with the house of God. In the New Testament, it talks about that if the judgment begins in the house of God, How terrifying is the judgment going to be for the unbeliever? The prophet Jeremiah has delivered two messages. The first in verses 1 through 14. And now he delivers, even though it's the same sermon, he has a different audience. It's the nations of the world. The scope of the prophecy is going to include the devastation that takes place from Babylon. But just like prophecy often does, we're given a glimpse into the near future. And then we're given a glimpse into the far future. Most of you know that God sees the beginning from the end. And he knows every single point in between. Jeremiah wasn't simply called to the Jewish people and to the Jewish nation, but he was called, remember, from our study in the book of Jeremiah, from the opening chapter in verse 5, he says, when God called Jeremiah, he said, I am calling you to be a prophet to the nations, Goim, the Gentiles. And who is going to be the recipient of the prophecy? I'm going to suggest to you that as human history begins to unfold, the words of Jeremiah will speak to each and every generation that's willing to read it. God has set Jeremiah as a prophet over Judea and Jerusalem, but he's also set Jeremiah over the nations in chapter 1, verse 10. And so he gives Jeremiah authority to speak the word of God to the nations. The Bible teaches us that the true and living God isn't simply the God of the Jews, but he's also the God of the Gentiles. And he's not just simply the God of the first generation or the generation that that existed prior to the the flood of Noah, or the generation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or as you fast forward into the future, the offspring of Abraham, but also the God of the nations. The Bible teaches that the nations will be judged, and this is the key concept that you have to understand. The nations are going to be judged according to the same standard that he judges the Jews. And on what basis does God judge Jews? And on what basis does God judge Gentiles? And on what basis does God judge every single generation? Oddly enough, it's on the basis of the revelation of his word and the communication of his message. Each and every person has a responsibility to listen to what God has to say and then to respond to what God has to say. 
The Bible teaches that people will respond to the message or not respond to the message. And you know what's strange? From verses 15 to 38, I challenge you to find the mention of a single sin. He doesn't talk about the sins of the nations. Even though the sins of the nations are well known and well documented, someone might think, well, there's not a single sin that's mentioned. And so on what basis are they judging the nations? The rebellion and the disobedience of Jerusalem and Judea was well documented. And by the way, is the idolatry, is the rejection of God, and the rejection of the revelation of God, and the rejection of the Messiah of God, and the rejection of the Word of God, well documented in every generation? The answer is yes. Paul, in the book of Acts, argues persuasively to the Greek philosophers in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, it says, Paul, when he was speaking to the Epicureans and the Stoics, he said, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with human hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life breath to all things and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each of us. Here's Paul's argument. God sent Every single person in every single nation in every single circumstance, God has established the borders of nations and the collection of peoples and the place that they wind up. Not for the purpose so that they can't know God. Not for the purpose so that they wouldn't know the Bible or hear the message of God or the message of hope. Paul argues that God has placed every single person in every single circumstance everywhere on the planet so that they could know God. And he argues, and he is not far from each one of us. Now, this is interesting to me for those people who ask me about the question, well, what about the person who's never heard of Jesus? And what about the person who's never read the Bible? And what about the person who has no idea that sins can be forgiven? And that there's a God who loves you and is willing to forgive you. And I remind them of the same argument that Paul made. God hasn't placed those people in that circumstance so that they would not know God, but rather so that they would know God. And God has placed two unmistakable witnesses to every single person in every single generation. The first witness is the creation all around you that testifies to the fact that there's a creator. And the second witness is your own conscience in your heart that beats every moment of every day, reminding you that there is a God who is just. And so, God has placed each and every person in each and every nation so that they should seek the Lord. The Lord gives Jeremiah eight vivid metaphors 
of the upcoming judgment that unfolds in human history. Look again in verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, that is Jeremiah, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. This is the first metaphor. This is the first image of judgment. There's going to be, like I said, eight. You can count them out. One, the cup of wrath. Take the wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. By the way, does Jeremiah go to every single nation? No. So when the Lord says, and cause all the nations to I am send you to drink it, who is he? Who's he sent to? I'm going to suggest to you that Jeremiah doesn't leave Jerusalem and Judea. But I am going to suggest to you that ambassadors come from Tyre and Sidon. Ambassadors come from Dedan. They come from Assyria. They come from Jordan. They come from Egypt. They come from Babylon. This particular place is the crossroads of civilization. But I'm also going to suggest to you that Jeremiah goes out to every nation and every generation, and he happens to be sitting on your lap right at this very moment if you brought your Bible. But there it is. There's Jeremiah and the words of Jeremiah. And how does he deliver the message? Again, I'm going to suggest to you that he delivers the message in person to the ambassadors, and he warns the people who are from from. Tyre and Sidon, from Gaza and Ashkelon, Egypt to the south and Assyria to the north and Babylon to the east and all of the nations that surround the Mediterranean. He is going to write it out. And by the way, the manuscript is going to be tossed in the fire and Jeremiah is going to rewrite it. And then the, the, then the passage is going to be preserved for you and for me. Wearsby writes, to drink a cup is a symbol of submission to the will of God. He writes, quote, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18, 11. Jeremiah calls the nations to submit to God's will, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, and be spared destruction. Jeremiah would later illustrate this message by wearing a yoke in, in chapter 27. If the nations did not drink the cup of submission, they would be, end up drinking the cup of ju judgment and get drunk and vomit and fall and rise no more, like it says in verse 27. So the cup of judgment is a bitter cup indeed, but the judgment to the nations is nothing compared to the cup that I've already referred to in John 18:11. Remember what Jesus said, the cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? What's the cup of judgment that he's going to drink? It's your sin. He is going to swallow every weird and wicked and filthy thing that you have ever done or ever will do. 
the cup that he presses to his lips is the sin and the rebellion and the disobedience and the wickedness that has marked your life and my life and the life of every single person who has lived in every single generation. And he is going to drink the bitter dregs down to the last drop because sin must be judged. And he will judge it. And Jesus will drink. And he won't shy away from the cup. Jesus will atone for the sins of the world. Like it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. And then in verse 16, it says, And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Uh, Here's the idea. That that cup of trembling, that that cup of anger, that that cup of of judgment as they press it to their lips and it begins metaphorically to course through their body. It is overwhelming. They can't stand up straight. They can't keep their senses about them. Because if I can use this term, it's stupefying. That's the word that comes to my mind. If you've ever been drunk, and I know some of you have, There's different kinds of drunkenness, isn't there? There's the buzz. There's the pleasure. There's you don't know who you are or where you are or who anyone else is around you. And then there's the blackout, stupefying, I have no idea who I am or what I'm doing here. That's what he's talking about. This is an overwhelming judgment. In verse 17, it says, Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. What are we talking about? Remember what the the cup symbolizes. Submission to God's will. Submission to the justice and judgment of God. Jerusalem, it says, and the cities of Judah, its kings and princes, to make them a desolation and an astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is in this day. The judgment begins with Jerusalem and Judea. And Jeremiah invites them to look at the city as it lies in ruins. He's calling upon the people, the nations, to look and fear and tremble and understand that if God is willing to discipline and judge his own people, how in the world are they going to escape judgment? He says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants... His princes and all of his people, Blackwood states the list of the nations that follow, are more suggestive than exhaustive. In other words, when God speaks concerning the nations in Jeremiah chapter 25, is this a real judgment? I'm going to suggest to you that it is. Is it a short-term judgment that has an immediate historical context? The answer is yes. Babylon is going to swallow up those countries and is going to demand and insist that the countries surrounding Judah and and what you and I would call the Holy Land, they're going to submit to the yoke of, of bondage to the Babylonian Empire. And so he says, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, The list follows a geographical order, by the way. 
It's going to go from the south, and then it's going to go southwest, Philistia, east, Edom, northwest, Tyre and Sidon, northeast, Dedan, and the, and, the, and the desert tribes to the north. And by the way, the Pharaoh who's mentioned here is the Pharaoh Necho. This is the Pharaoh who will resist Babylon and will pay a horrible price. And by the way, the title Pharaoh means great house. And it was used to describe the ruler, if you will, of Egypt. And so in verse 20, it says, all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. The mixed multitude, by the way, are the foreigners who are living in Egypt. It's hard for me to explain, but I'm going to try. In the 7th century, the 6th century, and the 5th century, there were massive amounts of Greek people who moved from the islands of Caria and Ionia and the, and the Greek Aegean islands. And they moved inland, and then they began to people, if you will, in the northern part of Egypt. So the mixed multitude are the foreigners living in Egypt. The land of Uz is the homeland of Job. You remember that from Job, chapter 1, verse 1. Job was from the land of Uz. And scholars are divided. That it might be a reference to the Transjordan, or it might be a reference to parts of Saudi Arabia. The name means soft and sandy earth. If I were to translate the word in our language to the best of my ability, it would be the place of the sand dunes. Does that sound familiar to you? Saudi Arabia. It's, a pla it's like a gigantic dirt pile. The lands of the Philistines included the places previously occupied by the Philistines, which we would call the coastline of Israel and Gaza. As a matter of fact, if you have a map in your Bible and you go and you put your finger on where the mouth of the delta of the Nile opens and you begin to move your finger up the coastline of Israel, that's going to be the area called Gaza. The word Philistines, by the way, means the land of the wanderers. Ashkelon, migration, was a port city about 10 miles north of Gaza, which means fortified or strong. Ekron means eradication. But these were the Philistine strong cities that, that literally lay hold of the coastline area. Ashdod means fortified place. This is the place, by the way, during the time of the judges when they... Um, captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they took it into Ashdod, and the Bible says that they all got hemorrhoids in their secret places. <laughs> so, by the way, um, that place, Ashdod, 35 miles north of Gaza, Pharaoh, Semeticus, who lived from 663 to 606 B.C., basically came up from Egypt, destroyed Ashdod, 
And so it's talking about the remnant of the people who are left over from that time. And then in verse 21, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon. This is the land east of the Jordan River. To the north parts of Syria. In your mind, if you can go to the, the Sea of Galilee and then the Jordan River that empties into the Dead Sea. If you go to the parts just east of the Jordan River, um, this is going to be part of Edom. And Moab. Edom is the name of Jacob's older twin brother. It's a, it's a transliteration of Esau. So the land of Edom was south of Judea. Moab means water, seed, or progeny. This is the land directly east of the Dead Sea in modern Jordan. Ammon, by the way, is the capital of Jordan. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 38, it means the son of my relative, and those of you who are familiar with biblical history know the story that when Sodom and Gomorrah were completely wiped out from a judgment from, from God, Lot, with his two daughters, thinking he's the last man on earth, got the old man drunk, slept with him, produced offspring, which would become the Ammonites. So these people are, they don't have a whole lot of forks on the family tree. The kings of Tyre, the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastlands, which are across the sea. Tyre is in modern Lebanon. It means rock. It was the capital city of the Phoenicians. And for those of you who were on, here on Sunday, you remember I told you that the Phoenicians were the first people to navigate the Mediterranean Sea. They established colonies in North Africa, in Carthage, in Tarshish, in Syracusa, in Sicily. And so the Phoenicians were the first people to go through the Straits of Hercules, and then they built ships that would provide trade for the coastlines of Africa. And so these were the merchants and the movers and the shakers of the ancient world. And Sidon is another important uh, harbor, Phoenician city, that's 22 miles north of Tyre in, in, in modern Lebanon. So Phoenicia had many, many colonies. Dedan, Tima, Buzz, and all who are in the farthest corners. Dedan is a tribal name. I suspect from Genesis that it is the area of northern Arabia that bordered Edom, Tima means desert. It, th these were Arab, Arabs living in the deserts both of Syria and Arabia. You can find this in Genesis chapter 25, verses 15 and 16, Isaiah chapter 21, verse 14, Job chapter 6, verse 19. The word buzz means contempt. And this was a tribe that was descended from Nahor. You'll remember that Nahor was the brother of Abraham. Abraham had a brother named Nahor. Nahor had a son named Lot. Hence, Abraham is Lot's uncle. And Nahor is his father. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 22, verse 21. These are the people who would live near the Tigris and Euphrates, just south of what you and I would call Baghdad. And when it says the people with um, the farthest corners or the utmost corners, it's an interesting expression in the Hebrew. It's also found in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 26. And I talked a little bit about it there in Jeremiah chapter 9. 
But I want to read it to you just real quick because it's interesting. It says Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners. And then here it talks about the farthest corners. Who are these people? I'm going to suggest to you again that these are Arabs living in the Saudi Arabian desert who practice certain idolatrous practices. And what they would do is they would shave their head in kind of a strange way. They would shave their heads so that the corners of their head were completely shaved. And this is one of the reasons why in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27, the Jews were prohibited to cut the corners of their hair. In other words, some of you have seen modern Jews and they'll have these little locks that come from the corners of, of their head. And one of the prohibitions was because this, this particular hairstyle, if you will, was noted and marked by people who would practice certain kinds of strange idolatrous practices. And then in verse 24, it says, All the kings of Arabia, all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert... The word, even mixed multitude in the original language, is Ereb. Ereb. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Arab. And so here are the Arab tribes that are listed. And all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, all the kings of the Medes. I've searched high, I've searched low. I've searched left. I've searched light, right. The meaning, the best that I can tell of the word Zimri means celebrated in song, is the meaning of the term. Who are these people? Here's going to be something that you don't hear me often say. I have no idea. I have no idea who these people are. I've looked, I've read, I've searched. If you come up with a a plausible explanation of who they are, love to hear it. The kings of the Medes are the region east of the Zagros Mountains, in the area south of what you and I would call the Caspian Sea. It was west of Parthia, north of Elam. Media would emerge as a major player and a powerful nation some 100 years before Jeremiah comes on the scene. As a matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar would form an alliance with the Medes by marrying the daughter of the king of Media. As a matter of fact, once the Babylonian Empire collapses, the Medes will join forces with the Persians. The Medes will disappear from history. The Persians will have ascendancy. And so um, that's the area that you and I would call Iran. And all of those other states that surround Russia... Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, um, what are the other stands? Yeah, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, all of those stands. I just remember it in Spanish, Aquinoistan. No, see, somebody gets it, okay. I'm not there. The kings of the north, far and near, 
one with another. And all the nations or the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth. And I'm going to suggest to you that the prophecy had an immediate and a historic application. But then it has a future application. Will God judge all of the nations on the planet Earth? The answer is yes. On what basis will God judge all the planets or all the nations on the earth? On the basis of the revelation that's been given in the Bible concerning the Jewish people and concerning the Jewish Messiah. It says the king of Shishak. Some scholars have offered Shishak as the king of Babylon using an ancient cryptic cipher code. Because in ancient times and in other ancient literature, the king of Shishak almost invariably was a reference to the king of Babylon. But Babylon also becomes a type and a picture of the world at large. And so I'm going to suggest to you that it becomes a way of saying that God is going to judge the ruler of this world. In verse 27, it says, therefore, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk. And vomit. You know what the imagery is? It's that horrible imagery that maybe you've seen at some point in your life. I don't know if you've ever had a situation where someone has taken a bottle of vodka or a bottle of scotch or some sort of bottle of whatever intoxicating beverage that was available and they stuck it in a person's mouth and the person didn't want to drink and they didn't want to drink and they didn't want to drink and then all of a sudden you've drank and drank until you can't drink anymore. The idea is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say it, it's alcohol poisoning. It's alcohol toxemia. It's this idea of drinking and drinking where you can't stand it anymore. Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more. These are all of the signs of a drunk. But even in this particular instance, it seems to indicate a person who really genuinely doesn't want another drop. But here's the picture. Remember, it's a metaphor. The metaphor is, I don't want to experience God's judgment. I don't want to have to live out the consequences of my wickedness and my rebellion. I don't want to have to face God. And I don't want what God is going to do to me because I haven't accepted Jesus as my Savior. Because I haven't believed the Bible. Because I haven't walked in His way. And here is the idea. Therefore you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. Part of the image of the picture is a person who is knocked down, dragged out, drunk, facing a well-skilled special operations warrior. Now again, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever seen a person who is sloppy, drunk, Who's trying to get in a fight 
with a person who's a skilled person in fighting. And they're not drunk. They're sober. They're alert and they're trained and they can kill you. One of the great privileges of my life is I get to work with law enforcement. Some of the law enforcement officers that I work with are trained killers. They're Navy SEALs. They're special forces. For those of you who are old enough to remember, there was this movie called Billy Jack where Billy Jack is talking with this person and he says, he says, see, this, this is my shoe and I am going to put it right up against the side of your face and there's not anything you're going to be able to do about it. And then he does it. He just kicks him right on the side of the head and the guy is gone. I've had the privilege of working with people in the Denver Police Department and the FBI and other law enforcement agencies who have special, specific people who are trained to kill you. That's what the verse is actually talking about. It's a person who doesn't want to die and they're not prepared to die and they have none of the resources in order to face the opposition and then the opposition is going to be precise and overwhelming. It says in verse 28, and it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. Here's the implied question. God, what if the nations don't want to be judged? <laughs> I mean, after all, this particular nation is Muslim. This particular nation is Hindu. This particular nation is atheistic. What about atheistic China? What about Hindu India? What about Buddhist Sri Lanka? What about Catholic Mexico? What about nations that don't necessarily see your particular religious worldview? What if they don't want to be judged according to the standards of the Bible? What do you think the answer is? And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. Remember, again, what is the basis of the judgment? What did you do with God's word? And what did you do with God's Savior? This might come as a shock and as a surprise to you. You might even be annoyed by what the Bible seems to indicate. But will nations that persecuted Christians... And Jews be judged? The answer seems to be yes. Well, what about atheistic North Korea? What about Iraq and Iran? What about, the, what about China? What about these countries? What about the United States of America? What about a country that says, we don't care about God and we don't care about the God of the Bible and we don't care about the words in the Bible? And so they begin to treat people in a wicked way. What if they don't want to be judged? doesn't matter. Look what it says in verse 29. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. That's Jerusalem. And should you be utterly punished if I am willing to take the people of Judea and Jerusalem... And bring them under pressure in order to get them to submit and comply. What won't I do to you? 
That's the point that he's making. You shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on, look what it says in the text, on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. Who's exempt? No one. What if you're in Crete and you don't really, you're, not, you're just trying to stay out of everybody's business. What if you're on top of a mountain in the Alps, you're Switzerland, you've been declared neutral each and every time, and you don't want to be judged. Doesn't matter. And again, I find it interesting that no sin is mentioned. And then the roaring lion. So we go from the cup, and now we're going to go quickly through the others. The roaring lion at the beginning of verse 30, therefore prophesy against them all these words. And say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. Here's the picture. Picture is of the cup of judgment. Now the picture is of a lion Coming out of his lair. And I got to tell you something. If you've never, ever, ever actually been face to face with a lion, a tiger, a bear. Oh my. You see this gigantic cat and it's just literally inches away from you. And it roars. And with every molecule in your body. You understand what the lion is trying to say. You're toast. That's the idea. And he utters his voice from his holy habitation. Now remember, the lion is used as an image both of God and of Satan. Remember, the Bible says that Satan, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. But the Bible also uses this imagery of God. Raw, powerful, irresistible. And then at the end of the verse, he uses the image of a wine press. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against the inhabitants of the earth. In ancient cultures, when it was time of the harvest and they would bring the grapes in, it's just like that crazy, stupid film. If you ever saw Lucille Ball trampling the grapes in Italy, the people get inside of the vat and they begin to sing and they begin to dance and they begin to shout. It's actually a shout of joy and a shout of celebration. You've all heard the song. Um, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the places where the grapes of wrath are stored. The image is like humanity or like little grapes popping. You know, human beings are 90% water. And of that 90% water, most of it is blood. And the image is of human beings popping like so many grapes. It is a horrible and a terrible image. The horrible and the terrible image is, how is that even possible? But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that a judgment awaits the planet Earth by God. So he goes from the image of the wine press to the image of a lawsuit in verse 31. A noise will come to the ends of the earth for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. The word controversy here means a legal case. 
He will plead his case with all flesh. That means humanity. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. The NIV reads, the Lord will bring charges against the nations. It's the exact same expression used in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Micah chapter 6, verse 2. And so the mixture of the metaphors continue. Justice is a part of of what God does in relation to the nations. And so here is the idea. The idea is the people might, someone might say, how is this just? How can God judge? What does the court look like? There's a judge, but no jury. There's an indictment, but no defense. There is a sentence, but there is no appeal. The picture is, I'm going to bring you up on charges. Now, think about this for a moment. Who's the judge? God. Who's bringing the indictment? God. Who's the jury? God. Who brings forth the sentence? God. By the way, in the New Testament, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the judge. He is the judge. Every single human being, without exception, will stand before the Lord God. And when I say the Lord God, I mean the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) The Lord has given people plenty of opportunity. And here's the key. To admit guilt. I'm bringing you up on charges. What are the charges? Rebellion, disobedience, sin. How do you plead? Guilty. What's the solution? I throw myself on the justice of the court. No, no, wrong answer. That's the wrong answer. You're using the J word when you really mean the M word. I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the court. And what does the mercy look like? It looks exactly like Jesus. So he goes from the image of the lawsuit to the image of the storm. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a disaster shall go forth from nation to nation and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. Imagine you're looking at Google Earth and all of a sudden you see the planet and you see what looks like dust clouds on opposite sides of the planet. And there's this line of dust that begins to form on opposite sides and one goes east and the other goes west until the whole planet planet is enveloped in what looks like hurricane winds. The storm visits the nations. What's the imagery trying to tell us? It could be trying to tell us that nation will attack nation and kingdom will attack kingdom. And one nation will begin to destroy another nation and it will result In a global conflagration. He goes from the image of a lawsuit, the image of a storm, to the image of a garbage heap. Look at verse 33. And in that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth to the other. 
They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Once again, the judgment is so great, there's no one left to bury him. And you have to remember what an important thing it was for the observant Jew to have a respectable funeral. There's been a couple of times when I've seen so many dead people that there was no possible way to bury them. In the 1990s, during the Rwandan revolt, millions of people died. You could see bodies floating down the river, bloated. When the tsunami came and hit the shores of Sri Lanka and then India, literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were drowned and killed. And they had to pile body on top of body on top of body and build massive graves. Some of you have seen images in World War II of the Hitler's attempt to to extinguish the, the Jews. And there were piles, literally mountains of human beings who were dead. It says they shall not be lamented or gathered. Or buried. The word translated refuse is the Hebrew word dung, excrement. It would be as if you're taking sewage, raw, open sewage. And then it gives the image of a shattered shard in verse 34. Look what it says. Weep, wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in the ashes. This is a sign of mourning. You're crying and weeping. Roll about in the ashes. This is the charred, burnt remains of what is left. You leaders of the flock. These are the leaders of the nations for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel here. The precious vessel is an expensive vase or an exquisite and delicate piece of pottery. I once asked my grandma, what's the difference between a vase and a vase? And my granny said, a vase is more than $20. A vase is something delicate And expensive. And so here the image is a delicate, expensive, beautiful, precious vessel is shattered. You know, the Bible often speaks of us as vessels. We can be vessels of righteousness or we can be vessels of unrighteousness. And the Bible says Be a clean vessel. Be a holy vessel. Be careful of what you put in your head and in your heart because God desires for you to be a clean and pure and holy vessel. But there will come a time, it says in Psalms chapter 2, verse 9, that the Lord God of heaven will break the nations like so many clay pots. The image is like a bull in a china shop. It goes crashing through and the pots are shattered. And then he uses the image of the slaughtered flock in verse 34. Wail, shepherds, 
for the days of your slaughter. Verse 35, and the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape the image. Is of a flock or a herd that is overtaken and then butchered. The shepherds are the leaders who exploited the people. And they refuse to exercise care and compassion towards the people. And the image is of leaders who are getting exactly what they deserve. And in verse 36 it says, A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture. The screams are heard as the massacre unfolds. There's nowhere to run. There's no place to hide. It doesn't matter if you have a bomb shelter in Montana. It doesn't matter if you've built a pit in Idaho. It doesn't matter if you've searched the planet Earth and you've looked for a place to run away and escape the certain judgment of God. And the Bible says he'll find you no matter where you go, no matter what you do. And in verse 37, it says, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. In other words, those people who even made a conscientious attempt not to cause anyone any problem. But by the way. Can apathy and indifference be a sign of sin and rebellion? I don't care about God. I don't care about the Bible. It's not like I'm for it or against it. I just want to remain neutral. Does the Bible give you the ability to remain neutral about God and about Jesus? The answer is no. And he returns to the image of the lion. He has left his lair like the lion. For their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Some Bible scholars have suggested that this is a type and a picture of Nebuchadnezzar as he comes and he subdues the nations and he causes them to comply. He forces them and subjects them to his will. I'm going to suggest to you probably the better reading is the prophetic reading. That this is God. Who comes out of heaven. Of a rebellious planet. And reminds the planet. That in the end. You can't remain apathetic. You can't remain indifferent. You can't remain wholly. Openly. Irresistibly. Committed. To denying Jesus. Hating Jesus. Hating the gospel. Hating the Bible. I want you to understand something that I'm going to suggest to you that Jeremiah chapter 25 in the verses that we've just read is what Peter was thinking about when he wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17. For the time is coming that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us. What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Hard times? Difficult times? By the way, do believers face persecution? Do they face suffering? 
do they face difficult times? But guess what? No amount of persecution, no amount of suffering, no amount of pain, no amount of difficult times is anything compared to the grace and the mercy and the joy that Jesus has lavished upon us. His mercy is new every morning. His grace is available every day. His pardon is for every single person who will repent and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so, a word of warning for the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that judgment may begin with us. And Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who are willing and even responsive to discipline. That, Lord, we would take discipline for what it really is, a mark of sonship, a mark of daughtership, a mark of relationship. Lord, we pray that we would begin to cherish the stripes that we receive from you because it's testimony that you're our father. Lord, we pray that we would long for the discipline of our just father because he loves us so much. And he wants to make sure that we go in a direction not of rebellion and disobedience and selfishness, but of joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, we know that the discipline was never meant to permanently harm us, but to always help us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and the plans and the purposes that you have for us. And Lord, if any man or any woman is going through a difficult time of discipline, Lord, I pray that they would embrace the discipline and rejoice that they are sons and daughters. That, Lord, you're hearing us and that you're directing us and you're guiding us and leading us and providing for us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your discipline. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.